pray together. Father, what a blessing this morning to know and sing about Christ as our Redeemer, that he is ours. Lord, he has conquered the biggest problems we could ever face, the guilt of our sin, the penalty we deserve to pay in hell, separated from you forever. He already took care of that once and for all through his death and resurrection. And so, Lord, thank you for dealing with our biggest need. And thank you that you provide for every other need through Jesus. Lord, he is our shepherd that we just sang about, who protects us and provides for us. His grace is sufficient for us. He is our peace and our strength and our joy and our hope. He is our all in all. And so we are just so thankful that you have worked in our hearts in such a way that we have willingly embraced Jesus as our Savior and our Lord and our treasure and our King. And I pray for anyone who's here who has never come to Christ, does not know Christ personally, that even today they would understand their need for him and see that he is the only one who can rescue us. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. The Apostle Peter devotes the first 12 verses of his letter rehearsing some amazing realities about our salvation. He reminds us we have been chosen by God the Father and set apart by the Holy Spirit and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And we have been born again to a living hope of enjoying God forever in heaven. Our text for today reminds us of some truths about our redemption and an appropriate response to those truths. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 as we continue our study in this New Testament letter. 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 17. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ." So Peter starts by touching on a remarkable privilege that we have as believers. Because we have been born again into God's family, we now have the right to call him Father. We were by nature children of wrath, but now by grace we are children of God. And now we can approach the judge of all the earth, confident that we will be welcome and accepted because of Jesus Turn over to Romans 8 for a moment. And Paul talks about that privilege as well. Romans chapter 8, verse 14 through 16. Romans eight fourteen says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God 
These are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So being a child of God means you have the right to address God as Abba, Father. And as an appropriate response to being able to call God our Father is to conduct ourselves in fear during the brief time of our stay on earth. Conduct as a verb means to act or behave in a certain way, namely in fear. So what does that mean? Short definition would be a deep sense of awe and reverence. A little bit longer definition would be a profound sense of God's majestic greatness and holiness and of coming before him with the degree of humility and seriousness that is appropriate to such a glorious God, along with a healthy fear of offending or dishonoring him. So we are called to live a life of reverence during our temporary stay on this earth. You might have during the time of your exile or during the time of your sojourning, and those are both reminding us this world is not our permanent home. Heaven is our eternal home, and that is all intended to produce a deep sense of reverence for this privilege of calling God our Father. And also, because we know some things about our redemption. So Peter, back in 1 Peter 1, the last part of 17 says, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing, so he assumes we know these things, that you are not redeemed with perishable things like Silver or gold from your futile way of life. So what does it mean to be redeemed? And the basic idea is to be set free by the payment of a price. Why do we need to be redeemed? What do we need to be set free from? Well, in this passage, it's from your futile way of life. Futile means empty or worthless or meaningless, serving no useful purpose. So you see that word in a couple other texts like Romans 1. In Romans 1.21, Paul assessing the human race says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And so you reject the true knowledge of God and what can be known about God through creation and refuse to give him glory and thanks. And the outcome then is, Futility and meaninglessness, just like Ecclesiastes, right? Some of you men are studying Ecclesiastes on Tuesday mornings. Or in Acts 14, 15, Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra. And um, because of a healing, the people get all excited and start saying that they're gods and they're going to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. And in verse 15, It says, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you. Why are we preaching the gospel to you? That you should turn from these vain things, this superstitious religion you have that you're about to pour out on us, turn from that to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So there's this, you're in this vain religion of sacrificing animals to false gods and even trying to sacrifice them to us, that's vain. Turn from that. Repent. Turn to the living God. 
So depending on your background, your story might include a futile way of life. Maybe you've pursued broken cisterns trying to find something that would satisfy your soul and just kept coming up empty. That's a futile way of life. And Jesus came to redeem us from that. And he also came to redeem us from a futile kind of religion. And so again, depending on your background, maybe you came from a background where there's a lot of tradition or a lot of rituals, but no relationship with God himself. And that's meaningless too. And it says Jesus came to set us free from that. There's some other verses that talk about our need for redemption. Uh, Turn to Galatians 3. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 10 tells us, as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. Why? For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So the standard is 100% obedience to 100% of the law, or you're under a curse. So there's no wiggle room, there's no curve, there's no close enough, it's You have to completely conform to the law or you're under God's curse. And now look at the good news of verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So as Jesus is dying on the cross, he's under God's curse, under God's condemnation that should have been on us for breaking the law. So he redeemed us from that curse that was hanging over us. Also in Galatians, Galatians 4, 4, and 5. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption of sons. And then Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 14 right after mentioning the blessed hope and the appearing of glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So here's all these verses talking about being set free free from a futile way of life, free from the curse, free from the law, free from lawless deeds. We're free. We sang in Not I But Christ, I I can sing, I am free. It's because Jesus redeemed us. So how was our redemption accomplished? What was the price that could set us free? And Peter clarifies it wasn't anything perishable like silver or gold. Those are valuable things in this world, but they are not sufficient to redeem anyone. Go to Psalm 49. Psalm 49, in verse 7, it says, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly. And he should cease trying forever. So there's nothing valuable enough that we could redeem ourselves or anyone else. We just can't come up with anything. But God has provided the price. And that's in 
verse 19. It wasn't perishable things like silver or gold. It was with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Precious means of high cost, of great value or worth, highly esteemed and cherished. So the world sees the blood of Christ as offensive and unnecessary. I could quote you articles from supposedly Christian spokespeople that are saying, you know, this is just kind of, you know, maybe they could get away with that in the first century, but we're more refined now. And so to talk about the blood of somebody on a cross, that's just, we just don't do that anymore. Or offensive. And so in the first century Jews, it was a stumbling block to the Greeks. It was foolishness. But as believers, we see the blood of Jesus as precious because Jesus is infinitely precious. And so we sing with hearts of thankfulness, Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, bought me with his precious blood. It comes from these kind of texts. Peter compares the blood of Christ to a lamb unblemished and spotless. And possibly he's referring to the Passover where the blood of the lamb was put on the top of the doorposts and God passed over the people that had that blood there instead of and spared them from death. Or it could also refer to the lambs that were offered in daily sacrifices by the priests who were making offerings for sin. But Hebrews 10 insists the blood of animals can never take away sins. So who or what could actually take away sin and redeem us from sin? And the answer is Jesus. Remember John 129, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or in Hebrews chapter 9. If you want to turn to that, Hebrews chapter 9. Chapter 10 is where he says, The blood of animals can never take away sin. It's impossible. But in chapter 9, starting in verse 12, he says, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then, of course, there's millions and millions of angels around this throne in heaven, and they say in Revelation 5.12, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Peter goes on to keep talking about this redemption and tells us it was part of God's eternal plan. Get verse 20. Who, excuse me, for he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So, Jesus was foreknown before the world was created. God had an eternal plan to send him as our redeemer. Peter had already preached that on Pentecost. If you want to turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 
this man, referring to Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So there's this eternal plan. God foreordained that Jesus would be the one who would be sacrificed. Or in chapter 4 of Acts, you see it again. Acts chapter 4, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So here's all these human instruments responsible for wanting Jesus to die and actually getting him to die on a cross, and it's, it was all part of God's plan. They carried out God's sovereign plan. And then if you have King James or New King James, Revelation 13.8 says, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth. So the death of Christ was not an accident. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't a plan B. It was preordained by God as part of his eternal plan of redemption. Jesus was foreknown before the creation of the universe, but he has appeared in these last times. So that's very similar to 2 Timothy 2, if you want to turn to that. 2 Timothy chapter 1, excuse me, verse 9 and 10. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Now look at the timeline here. Which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So here's this eternal plan, and now it's unfolding in real time when Jesus comes to earth. He comes as a baby. He lives as a perfect, sinless man. He's offered as a perfect sacrifice, shedding his blood. And then Peter says he didn't stay dead. God raised him and gave him glory. So we're coming up on Easter in a few weeks. Easter is the confirmation that the price of redemption had been paid in full, that the work of salvation was completely accomplished and that God had accepted this sacrifice and declared Jesus as worthy of highest honor. And so in Philippians, we read those words, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you see this plan? Eternity passed, fullness of time, Jesus comes, he dies, he raises again, he's exalted to the highest place. And it's, again, it didn't just happen the day you trusted Jesus as your Savior. Salvation is so much bigger. So why did God plan redemption in eternity past and bring it about through the death and resurrection of Jesus? And there's several verses like Ephesians 1 that tell us the ultimate reason was for the glory of God. That is the ultimate reason for everything God does. So if you ever hear the word ultimate purpose in any sentence, you hopefully know it's ultimately about God and his glory. That's the big picture. But look what Peter adds. 
he also tells us in verse 21, it was for your sake. It was for your benefit. It was for your good. We are the ones that are set free from sin. We're the ones who are set free from the curse. We're the ones that are set free from a futile way of life. And do you notice how Peter describes us? You who through him, Jesus, are believers in God. So we heard the good news of the gospel. It's like it was shared last Saturday at the spectacular. We heard the good news of the gospel. We heard of God's complete remedy in Christ for our complete ruin and sin. And many believe. Why? How did that happen? And Peter tells us it was through him. Not through yourself, not through somebody else sharing with you, but through Jesus. Remember Hebrews says he is the author and finisher of our faith. Author means he's the one who makes it, right? We didn't come up with it on our own. Jesus is the author of our faith. He enables us to believe, Peter tells us, so that we, our faith and hope are in God. And so Peter says, knowing those things about our redemption, that it was planned from eternity past, that it was purchased by nothing less than the blood of Christ, that we came to believe in this good news through Jesus himself, that is intended to produce an appropriate sense of fear. And again, let me clarify, that doesn't mean being afraid. When I was a new Christian, uh, there was this guy in high school named Mark, and um, he was telling me a story about he was at a pizza place with a friend, and he sensed God nudging him to share Christ with this friend. And as he's telling me this story, he says, and I didn't want to go to hell, so I told him. Now, of course, we should share the good news of Christ with other people. But is the motivation so you don't go to hell? I hope you know not. That's fear. And 1 John 4.18 says, perfect love casts out fear. For fear involves punishment. So it's not share Christ or you'll be punished with hell, so you better do it. That's not the kind of fear we're talking about here. And 1 John 4.18 makes that very clear. But as Jerry Bridges defines fear, it is that indefinable mixture of reverence, fear, joy, and awe that fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he has done for us. Let me take you to another verse about that. Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Kind of a rhetorical question, isn't it? Absolutely no one. If God kept a strict record of every single time we fell short by omission or commission of what he's called us to do, none of us could stand. But there is forgiveness 
with you. Look at it. That you may be feared. Isn't that surprising? Didn't you think it should say that you may be thanked? And that would be perfectly appropriate. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. The ten lepers. They were healed of this awful, miserable disease. And Jesus thought the appropriate response would be that they would return and give thanks to God for that. If that's true of just giving thanks for being healed of an awful disease, how much more to be forgiven of sin, which is infinitely more serious than leprosy. Or we might have thought it'd say, there's forgiveness with you that you may be loved. And again, we saw that in Luke. Jesus tells a story about a person who had a big debt and a person who had a smaller debt. And his conclusion is, he who has been forgiven much loves much. And everybody in this room has been forgiven much. Nobody, little sinners. Nobody just forgiven a little here. We're all massive sinners. So we've, if we've been forgiven much, we will love much. But the verse doesn't say that you may be thanked or that you may be loved, but that you may be feared. Why? And I think the best answer I've seen comes from Leon Morris writing about 1 Peter. Peter is drawing attention to the fact that redemption is something miraculous. It is a blessing that we could never have expected. Our sin had brought us into a hopeless position, and we had no right to think that we could ever be delivered from it. Your sin, he seems to be saying, is a very serious matter. It set you in opposition to God and handed you over to eternal condemnation. From that situation, there was no escape. You were hopelessly, irrevocably lost. There is no ransom from such a situation. And then, incredibly, unbelievably, a ransom was found. It meant a heavy price, the price of the death of the wonderful Son of God. But that price was paid, and you have been redeemed. Never take your redemption for granted. Never count it as a common, ordinary thing. It is the most incredible thing that has ever happened. Do you believe that? Being guilty sinners before a holy God and that God came up with an eternal plan to send Jesus to redeem us is the most incredible thing that's ever happened. But it did happen. Accept it then with gratitude and with Ah, live your life in reverent fear. Well, as we close the last phrase in Peter's description of the fallen human race in Romans chapter 3 is, there is no fear of God in their eyes. And it's hard to tell if that's a summary of 10 through that verse or just a standalone, but either way, it's enough to doom us None of us, apart from grace, gives God the reverence that is due him as the great God that he is. None of us takes God as seriously as we should. We just brush him off and are indifferent to him at best 
or defiant of him at worst. But we're under God's judgment because we have no fear of him in our eyes. But if God is getting your attention this morning, cry out, I need to be redeemed. I am guilty of sin. I am under a curse. I deserve his wrath. That rest of Romans 3, let me read you some of it. This is the whole human race, including everybody in this room and anybody listening online. This is everybody. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So we're all sunk. We're all lost. And then we need to recognize, I can't do anything to redeem myself. There's nothing I could ever offer that would pay the price that's demanded for my sin. And so Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so we trust in Jesus as our Redeemer. Believe his precious blood on the cross is the only thing that could pay the price of redemption. Nothing else will do. Believe his resurrection from the dead shows he is the one who has done everything necessary to redeem us forever. The work is finished. As Peter said in Acts 10.43, through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you for your word and all that it tells us about our redemption in Jesus. It just, it is the most unbelievable thing in the world in some ways to think that you would rescue us when there was nothing in us or about us or that we could ever do that would make us redeemable. Thank you that Jesus came and paid it all that his blood was sufficient to wash away all our sins, cleanse us forever, make us acceptable in your sight. And Lord, only you can produce the appropriate reverence and fear that is due you for that. Lord, I pray that you'd continue to make us thankful and continue to make, have us love you more and more. But I pray that you would cause us to grow in our reverent fear for you. And Lord, I pray for anyone who's here who doesn't know what we're talking about or just doesn't understand his need for redemption or why Jesus is the only one who can redeem. Lord, would you open their blind eyes to see the truth and that you would give life to their dead hearts that they would gladly come to Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.